Well, hello, Greg. Welcome to Iconocast. Hey, Mike. How's it going? Going pretty well. It's been a little while since we've done the last one, and uh, just thought it'd be a good idea just to chat about some of the ideas that we've been kicking around the last few days and been thinking about what people can do in their daily lives. One of the things that we do know from talking to Michael Mann on a previous podcast is that as individuals, there's really not a lot that we can do that will overall change the course of what's happening with the um, global warming that's anthropogenic. But we can do things in our daily lives that will help us keep up mindful of the effects that we have on the environment and what we can do. Time for that? Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Well, these are some of the things that I do. <laughs> so I realized that when I wash my clothes, <clears throat> they're really not filthy, dirty, like as if I worked on a farm or something like that. I work in an office, I work at home. And so my washer has like a short cycle that only takes about 25 minutes to run through a cycle. And so that reduces the amount of energy uses as as well as the amount of uh, water that's used. The other thing that I do is I use cold water and there's a couple of reasons it saves energy on heating the water for the wash. But also if we talk about plastic, it gets microplastics that get into the environment from um, synthetic clothes and so forth. When we wash with cold water, it tends to um, shed less plastic. And then that is a, a smaller load for our environment to carry in the rivers and so forth and uh, down into where the fish eat plastics and it gets in their gills and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And my clothes are still clean enough. So I think I'm happy with it. Um, yeah, I, I do. I do the laundry and I in this household. And I, what I find amazing is I, I think that my family and I, I think we change our clothes like five times a day because oh. it doesn't matter how much. I can't like wait three days to do the laundry. It's amazing. Oh. It just builds up. But yeah, yeah uh, getting the loads as full as possible using cold water. One way I think about this kind of thing, it's not exactly what I do, but other people do it is when you travel. And you don't have as much opportunity to do your clothing. I, I spend a lot of time like on the road in, mm -hmm. in foreign lands. And so what you do, doing farm work, although actually archaeology or other dirty work. So you, at the end of the day, your clothes are completely dirty. So at that point, you take your shower or bath in the river and change into your cleaner clothes. Then those are the same clothes you use in the next morning. So in other words, where you put your change of clothes in your daily cycle might be inefficient. Oh, sure. Maybe move that so the clothes last longer somehow between washing. And then, of course, owning the clothes that you need so that you don't have to do the laundry as often. Right. Like sometimes I find myself thinking, I need to do laundry now because my son doesn't have any shirts. You know, he's not that big and he's tall, but he's not wide at all. So his shirts right. don't take up any space in laundry at all. <laughs> so, right. so it's getting getting a load that's worth doing takes longer. So instead I just buy three more shirts. You're going to use them anyway. It's not really excessive materialism. It just means your shirts are going to last six, eight, 12 months longer or two years longer or whatever. Right. Then, then you're filling the loads. Yeah. Might as well make it worth your while, right? The next thing that I got, and I, I was lucky that I was in the house when I bought the house because um, they're really nice to have is the water heater that was in this house is a tankless water heater. And I don't know if you've got one of those or if you've got the big, tall, 100-gallon or 80-gallon water heater that 
that yeah. he's basically just at, you know tries to keep the water at a, at a, like a, a constant temperature. Yeah, uh, that's what we have. Yeah. It turns off and, and on. The tankless water heater basically just has a series of coils that the water runs through as as you uh, turn on your faucet, and as it's running through there, that gets heated up, and so it only heats up the water that's going to be needed for whatever your particular purpose is, whether it's um, washing your hands or taking a shower. And so you're not, you're not using gas um, or electricity throughout the day when you're not here um, to keep right. water warm. That's just going to not going to be not going to get used for a while anyway. And so that's definitely a much more efficient way. And the nice thing I like about it is that if I have guests over to the house, I don't have to worry about um, being cold and naked towards the end of the shower when I still got shampoo in my hair. Oh, so it works really well in that sense. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I've had I've had three or four people over here and and um, and all taking showers and and uh, didn't have an issue with it. Uh, whereas my ex-wife, she's got she had a twenty-five gallon um, water heater. <laughs> And so when my daughter stayed over there one Christmas, she said she barely got her hair washed and all of a sudden it turned cold. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I was, I was, I was happy to be walking by the water tank. We had the traditional kind the other day and I heard the, I heard the uh, gas ignite, you know, it was warming up. It's like, no one's using the water right now, but it's keeping it warm. And, And I'll just add to that. I think that's right. I'll just add to that. When someone's thinking about getting an appliance, to replace something that exists now. If you are thinking about getting a methane-based appliance, you are thinking immoral thoughts. Now, you might not have the choice for some reason, right. but I really like to cook on a gas stove. It's not a good enough reason to destroy the planet. You got to put an electric stove in there when you're replacing a gas stove. Yeah. And you've got to have an electric water heater if you can possibly do that. I don't know if yours electric or not, but if you could possibly have electric um, appliances. And of course, obviously, the big problem we have right now, and whenever I have an opportunity to talk to legislators about this, I'm always saying we need a bill that makes it easy for anybody to upgrade their heating and cooling system to heat pumps and their water heating to an efficient water heating system. Anybody who owns a house should be able to do that without it breaking the bank. It should be completely accessible to everybody, including landlords, I suppose, and small businesses. For me, for me to change over to electric I would need to have like an electrician come out and uh, put in a 220 volt um, circuit in there and um, strengthen because it, it I do have gas for my for my uh, range yeah and for my um for my dryer as well as my furnace so it would be a changeover and if they would have a program where they get like low cost loans or something like that for people to do that that would be um, great because. And, and, and you're probably aware that most of the time in, in cities with older houses, like in St. Paul and Minneapolis, where houses were built in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, we still have a, a, an older housing stock. You got to find that most of the appliances are are going to be gas. Yeah. You know. Well, the house Which I grew is, up in had gas lights. That oh. had been, they had been capped off. They weren't, weren't working anymore. Yeah. But. But they, you know, that's another, that's more like 1880s, 1890s. Yeah. But yeah, we need to have the equivalent of the, of the urban electrification program that went, we went through in this country in the 30s, whenever that was, for that upgrade you're talking about. Right. You shouldn't even be, so, you shouldn't have to pay for it. It should just be something that we go out and we do. And the utilities cover it 
and maybe you pay a little, but it's just something that goes on your bill and you don't even notice it because it's done over a long time. You've got to get everybody upgraded so that they can put in their car charger, they can put in electrical right. appliances. If we want to do decarbonization and electrification, we have to push people to do it. And if you want to have that suit where you get fined if you don't do it, or it's a tax break if you do, those are only going to work a little bit. We just have to show up and solve the problem and do it. And, and it's a myth that uh, cooking is better on gas than it is on electricity. <laughs> I guess yeah. a lot. People, people tend to think that the instant on is nicer, but with uh, modern stoves, um, I, I uh, stayed with my cousin up in uh, Vatness Heights before I moved into this house when I first back, moved back to Minnesota. And the stove that she had, I thought, worked a lot better than gas. Um, mm -hmm. Quite improved from the old burners. Now the new yep. stove tops, I think, are really good. Yes, it's, they're actually quite good. And, and you could use your cast iron on them. That's right. You can. Right. <clears throat> so yeah, I, I cook with, I, I, I always like cooking with gas and I cook a lot, but uh, moving several, last house we were in, it was electric. And actually we had the choice. We, we had a, oh, our gas, our gas was um, old and leaky. So we pulled it out oh, and yeah. behind it was the circuitry for electric. Hey, nice. So we went, we switched to electric right there. Um, and it was a nice new, not expensive. Yeah. So, uh, well, one of the things that people don't realize is how much water it uses, uh, when you wash your, wash your dishes by hand. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things that, you know, I, I, I lived in Arizona, um, and I was always conscious about how much water I was using. Like, even when I would go into planet fitness and take a shower, I would, you know, turn the water off, suds my hair and then turn the water back on to rinse it. Mm -hmm. as I could just because I was thinking about the Colorado River drying up and I didn't want to be the one that dried it up the most and so that's I when you had longer hair and it took a lot longer to, to soap right. up your hair right? yeah, yeah. Right. my hair was longer then <laughs> yep. I was, I was hippie-ish for sure um but um so so I, I started looking into whether or not it was more efficient to wash dishes by hand or by a dishwasher and with mm -hmm. high efficiency dishwashers they are effective enough at um, keeping the rinse water clean that they only need to use about three gallons of water while while washing a full load, or three to four gallons while hand washing and rinsing in the sink can use up to 20 gallons because you're continuously rinsing off and refilling the refilling your soap and so forth. So yeah. And and again, that um you since we prefer to use hot water, um then again, you're, you're using energy to heat the water that you're using. So there's two phases or two reasons for doing that. Yeah, that's true. And I, I, it turns out, by the way, that if you take an environmental science AP exam mm -hmm. or a, a class in that, that's a, a commonly a, uh, one of the problems you might have to work out. You're given information about, you know, B, you, how many BTUs it takes to heat up water. Right. Well, that's an, that's what the BTU is, and you know what your typical water temperature is. The uh, typical dishwasher heats the water to a higher degree than you use in a sink, uh, and so it takes more energy per unit water to heat it. But you're using so much less water that it's right. a no-brainer. It's a huge difference, and then you get to use some very hot water in your dishes, which cleans them better. That's true. Yeah, that's so. true. 
because you because you don't have to worry about burning your hands or right or having hot water that's uncomfortable when you're when when it's in the dishwasher yeah whereas you know people are sensitive to hot water and don't turn it on as hot as they probably could otherwise right. so well, one thing though worth quickly mentioning i don't know how true this is but just something i worry about a little bit is if you buy an appliance if you have an old appliance in your house like a dishwasher so you know about how much energy it takes Mm -hmm. If you go to the store to buy a new one and it says this is 50% more efficient than the one you probably have. Right. Then you take it home, install it, and then run it. And it turns out that the, the energy efficient, energy saving setting is the minimalistic setting. And that's maybe the one you should use if you can. But if you add on extra rinse, extra wash, extra heat, blah, 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 oh, sure. then suddenly you're back up to your original dishwasher yeah. because they've been making dishwashers now long enough. There's been Energy Star appliances now for how many years? 30 years. Oh, yeah. So there's yeah. been some attention has been paid to this for several decades. So there may not be much of a difference. So when you're thinking about what to do, getting a more efficient dishwasher, it might be a falsehood and you're better off getting your electric appliance replaces some gas appliance in your house there are no gas dishwashers that i know of <laughs> i don't think so no but you know not even sure how that would work right well in, and then yeah speaking of that um extra services that you can you know extra buttons that you push i mean i know a lot of people like to have their um dishes dry when they open them up right so they'll push the dry button for an added dry cycle where it just um puts dry heat through there yeah but if you just open up the dishwasher slightly and maybe um use a towel to keep it open then you can let your dishes air dry without tripping over the door yeah it, it, and even tripping over the door is not so bad because it reminds you to empty the dishwasher right <laughs> and i find that dishes are so hot i open it up and if you open up right away they're so hot they just dry themselves off instantly the air except for the some things that are made out of certain kinds of plastic and I use the word plastic loosely. I don't know if it's really right. plastic, like rubber made containers to sit uh -huh. there with water beating all over them. So I just put those out on the counter and put them away later uh -huh. in the day, you know. But yeah, I, I've never used that thing. Any dishwasher I have, if you turn that on, it will catch on fire. Oh, I've, yeah. I've never used it. And now it's covered with a layer of whatever that would be calcrete from the water <laughs> and, the, and the soap. Yeah. Calgon, uh, I've switched from uh, um, from bottle shampoo, like in a plastic bottle, mm -hmm. to a, a bar shampoo when I'm showering, and and really about the big advantage of that is the fact that it cuts down on the amount of um, plastic that um, is used for the bottles, <clears throat> and, and I think it actually cuts down the amount of actual shampoo that's used too. Yeah, and shipping because you're not shipping water. Mm -hmm. Shampoo is mostly water, so right. It's a it's I I've also done that. Um, the first time I did it though, I ordered something, and I found out when it came, it came from, I think it was Australia. <laughs> so I don't oh. think I saved on the shipping cost that much. Who knows? No. So you know, but <laughs> but yeah, the bar soap it works great, and you can. Uh, the, you're not doing that plastic. You're not putting that plastic in the recycling. It's not being shipped around as much, mm -hmm. and the soap tends to. The trick is, for some, I didn't have a problem with this, but some people have complained. You got to find a good way to store it in your shower. It's not up and out of the way. Of, it's not getting, it's not melting under the water that's spraying on it by accident. 
Yeah, I got I got a rack and kind of an open rack at, at Target that um, has a suction cup and I put it at the far end of the shower so it's not sitting under the running water and it's right. got like I got um, my my hair my hair shampoo bar on, on uh, one side and then I've got my my old fashioned ivory soap um, on the other. It's like do the same thing. I don't use body wash anymore. I use that for a lot of years, but I think people waste a lot of um, body wash in in mm. a lot more uh, body wash than you really need in in the soap. All you really want to do is just break down the resistance of the water. So they yeah. can rinse off your rinse off your dirt on your body. It's not you know you don't need to have a lot. Yeah. And then sticking with that, since I've been cutting my hair pretty short due to the pandemic, and that's the only way I can cut my hair because I I don't want to I can't style my own hair. Right. So I just like, take a trimmer and just trim over my head. All right. So um that's allowed me because I'm kind of vain as far as how my hair looks when my hair is shorter, I don't have to shower every day. And so showering every other day or, or every, every third day, you know, is certainly satisfactory, especially since I've been working at home. But even when I go back to work, I think I still look okay when, when I haven't showered my hair and washed my hair that, that day. Mm-hmm. Still use deodorant every day, of course, but, but that's another way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> the environment. Um, you talked about like an, um, an AP environmental science course. I actually took one when I was at, um, uh, Metropolitan State and getting my, um, bachelor's degree. And, um, I, I did, um, I did a calculation on what my carbon footprint was. And at the time I was working, I was living in North Phoenix and I was working in Tempe and, in Phoenix, I don't know if you've ever really spent much time there or if our listeners have spent much time there, but when you are in the north and you kind of work downtown, there's really only one freeway that you can take to get to work, and that's um, the 51. It kind of goes in this through central Phoenix, but everybody has to take that because of the mountains. You can't really get around it, and so there's a lot of sitting still on the freeway, mm-hmm. and I, I had a... I had a um, fairly efficient car. It was a um, Kia Soul. They got about 25 to 30 miles to the gallon um, in town and about 33 or 34 on the highway. But that was not sitting in traffic. <clears throat> However, it wasn't really the amount of gas that I was using, but the fact that I spent a lot of time sitting still mm-hmm. um, on the freeway, knowing that there was um, an emission that was coming out of the back of the car that was going up into the air. And that's part of what's causing carb- global warming is the carbon that carbon emissions. And so um, once I did the carbon footprint thing and realized how much um, I was trying to save was offset by the fact that I was just kind of um, commuting in a car that made me sit uh, for you know 25 or 30 minutes uh, in traffic along with all the other thousands of cars that were beside me. I, I made a decision to um, trade in the Kia Soul and I bought a, a Kia Nero hybrid. So I didn't really have a way to use an electric car, but I think hybrids are pretty good, um, pretty good alternatives for that because of the fact that a lot of your city driving is going to be on battery that's chargeable when you're driving your car when you stop and you brake. So. And, and the engine is not running when you're sitting there. Exactly. It, it uh, unless it's... 
it might be running the charger battery or something that's independent. Yeah, so, yeah. Or else, or else if it needs to, you know, it'll turn off and on, you know, depending on if it needs the air conditioning. And it needs the air conditioning quite a bit in Phoenix, of course. Right. But, um, sure. But it, it certainly is, is is much reduced. And then even, and here's a nice thing. I've got a friend that's got a Ford F one fifty that I just bought. He lives down in Shakopee, and he said it has the um, auto stop start mm-hmm. in it. So even people that feel like they really need to have a big powerful engine can really you know do a lot um by getting even if you have to have like an eight cylinder car right you know, or truck right, right. just the yeah. fact that you've got that option on your car so that you're not polluting while you're sitting there i think is pretty good right yeah we as a, as a family did something major to cut our we basically took what was could have been on well close to an hour commute or more per day both ways you know right. in total in total down to uh 11 minutes and um and also got a, a hybrid at the same time oh sure yeah so, so our carbon footprint went down to a fraction of what it was before and compared to the average american uh average american which includes people who drive great distances because they're rural or big distances because they're suburban Right. As well as urban people don't drive much, we are our, our carbon footprint is way way low because uh, in the, under normal conditions because it commutes so low during COVID isolation. Of course, it was much lower, but that made a big difference. Yeah, that's right. It's got to be just you know, I think I think from where you are to where to where um, the school is, it's it's uh, got to be just a quick hop, skip, and a jump basically yeah. compared to where from where you where you used to be. Right. Yeah. Um, for people that listened to our last uh, podcast, where we talked to Bill Shutt, it, it was a two-part episode. First episode, you and Bill um, talked about, it was because this was on the heart, why there's heart attacks um, mm-hmm. that tend to happen after the first snowfall or during a particularly heavy snowfall every year. And there was one thing that you forgot and when you were when you were talking about you forgot to mention the fact that you know snowblower snowblowers work pretty good too to prevent heart attacks yeah <laughs> and i've got one is it electric <laughs> it's electric he uses a rechargeable battery to uh, power it so i don't i don't use gas on it excellent so, excellent and you like it i really do um well actually this is the fourth one i've had to have them replaced um and and they've replaced them free and they've shipped them out when i when i ship it back i don't send back the batteries when they return them they send me a new set of batteries and a charger so i can just i don't if i if i use up the batteries then i don't have to worry about um waiting until the battery charges (laughs) so right swap swap them out okay that's interesting everybody i know who has electric appliances like that really likes them yeah you know lawnmowers and in the old days, there was an electric lawnmower that you could get, but it used a cord. Right. And, and of course, ran anybody, the cord. Right. anybody <laughs> who has more common was the hedge clipper with a cord. Yeah. You know, and everybody used to go watch people doing that. And you just look down the cord, and you can see, okay, there's the part of the cord you cut, yep. the close part. Then there's a farther part you cut. And then it is all taped up. Yep. But, uh, but that's okay. I mean, it, it, that's a, uh, that technology isn't wrong. Um, in, in some industrial settings where there where diesel trucks are being replaced with electric trucks, right? Like in mining, 
uh, those trucks go back and forth in the same exact road again and again for a decade. So they don't have batteries. They have a, they're like a trolley. They have a cable oh, overhead. Sure. And they're, just, they're just plugged in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose like up in Hibbing around, like in, in, the, in the big open pit, they might be using those now then, huh? They are. They are. I, I don't know what they're doing right now, but at least mm -hmm. about a year ago, they were buying them at that time. Were they? Yeah. So I don't know what's being employed now, but yeah. For anybody that goes up to Hibbing, if you want to see something, I mean, it's, it's, it, yes, it's a big open scar in the land, but it is kind of fantastic in a way. But I mean, that, that uh, iron, open or iron pit up in Hibbing is, is, uh, it's, it's hard to, hard to figure out. It's hard to realize just how big it is until you go there. Now, I don't know if you know it, but back in the, in the 20s, um, they actually had to move the whole town of Hibbing one mile um, so that they could extend the, the pit. Really? They just put all the, they just took up everything and they put them up on these, um, on these rolling uh, logs and just slid them, moved it over a mile. <laughs> the whole town. Wow. Yeah, including Abe Zimmerman's um, appliance store. <laughs> <laughs> and that Abe was, was it Abe Bob Dylan's uncle yeah. or somebody. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. It is amazing. And of course, there's a lot of minerals in Northern Minnesota. This is off the topic, but, uh, it's if if the mining interests get what they want, they will mine the entire northern half third of the oh, state. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's pretty amazing how much mining they want to do there. Well, yeah, and 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 uh, Rebecca Otto might might be somebody we can talk to sometime. She's she did a lot of work when she was an auditor uh, on the um, on the nickel, the proposed nickel sulfide yeah. mine, and in, in the damage that that could do. <clears throat> Um, and, and those were seven or eight different things that you can do in your everyday life. They may not completely turn around global warming, but they certainly can help keep your conscience clear, but also keep you a little bit mindful about some of the things that we as individuals can do to contribute. Um, yeah. But the important thing is to talk to your legislators make sure that they have an, uh, a good understanding, a good grasp of the issue, and they'll be able to work for you. And this last weekend, District 67A, which is east side of St. Paul, had its convention. We have basically an open seat uh, for the 67A legislator. Uh, and so a week ago Sunday, I had a visitor to my door, and this was Liz Lee, who's running to fill the seat. She's a, a young woman that used to work for Keith Ellison in, in Congress when he was in Congress and she worked with Tim Mahoney when he was in the state legislature in Minnesota. And she came to the door and um, she was like the first person that came to the door after I was named as a delegate. And she asked me what issues that I had. Well, it just so happened that I had gotten some um, info from MN350, uh, a climate project um, and they were talking about funding that would be available for the state of Minnesota to switch over most of our mass transit buses from uh, diesel buses over to electric. And so I talked to her about the advantages of those, um, not only from the energy, but also the effect that the particles have um, since buses run heavier in poor neighborhoods. They tend to have kids uh, developing asthma more frequently than they used to just because of the fact that they're exposed to diesel uh, fumes from the buses. And so it has a twofold effect of 
clearing the air, saving the asthma, as well as cutting down on our reliance on diesel fuel uh, in our seven county metropolitan transit district. And so last Saturday at the convention, there was a Q&A and somebody had uh, turned in a question for the four candidates about what would their priorities be uh, when they got to the legislature. And sure enough, Ms. Lee, uh, that was what exactly what she said in her response. So by being willing to talk to and work with your legislators, you can actually just by having a conversation with them, you can start to get people to in the legislature to think about different ways that they can work for the environment and for reducing global warming. Yeah, <clears throat> and that, that actually, that's a good lead into what I, what I do to save the environment. Right. All the things you suggested are things that I, I do, similar things, and I mentioned some of the details for, for us. Um, I do, I'm, a, I'm pretty active, politically active, so I, I help locally with a couple of groups and in, a couple of indivisible groups and also with a DFL. For those who are listening outside of Minnesota and some who are listening from inside Minnesota, I'll mention that DFL means the Democrats. It's called the DFL Democrat Farm Labor Party in Minnesota. We don't have a Democratic Party. Uh, it's slightly different. And I'll mention that when, when uh, Mike's talking about 67A, we have 60-something 67. 67 Senate districts. Yeah. And every Senate district has two houses, two house representatives. And it's A and B. So we call it the A side versus the B side. So Mike's in 67A, I'm in 42B. Um, so um, I, I, I work on, I work with some different, I work with Indivisible, I work with the DFL Environmental Caucus. And we are on top of that mining issue, by the way. And we, we endorse candidates. We, we interview the candidates to see which ones are more environmentally active and pick winners. And these are things that volunteers do. But you can do these things as a volunteer. But to me, I like to think of it this way. I remember seeing, and I have not found this. I've never, I've not found this on YouTube or any place. It's, it's way old. When I was really little, I saw this on TV. I don't think I dreamed it. But it was a scientist. It was like a Mr. Science. Mm -hmm. And he had a bowling ball hanging on a chain, suspended and still. Now, we know immediately you think of this thing where you take the bowling ball up, put it on your face, let go. And because of the laws of physics, it doesn't hit you when it comes back. But that's not what he did. Oh. That's not what he did. That's what everybody does now. What he did was he took, a, he took a, like an index card and he stroked it against this big, heavy bowling ball. And he didn't see anything happen. He was watching closely. He stroked again and again, and he was stroking it with a piece of paper just as it was reaching the apex movement towards him, mm -hmm. and he'd be pushing it back. And in not very long, he had that giant bowling ball swinging hard from a piece of paper stroking on it. And if you have any experience with boats, you know you can do that to his boats. Like five or six people can make an ocean liner, not quite an ocean liner, but a pretty big boat at a dock starts right. to sway if you all push in the same direction at the same time. Yep. So I like to do things... And so if you're an activist, just to me, this is a paradigm for being a good activist. You can go out there and yell at somebody or convince someone to do something or write, sign a petition. But that thing you do is going to be even more effective when you're pushing at just the right moment. Right. And, and you don't know when the right moment is necessarily, but you often do. And when you do, that's when you push. So um, 
And I'm afraid that among my environmentalist colleagues and other people, Democrats, they don't get this and they don't even believe in it and they even are against it. So, for oh. example, when there's a hurricane, you push on global warming with a storm angle. Right. Like, oh, no, we must not exploit. The, oh, excuse me. We have to exploit the Do bad things that happen. Yeah. We have to exploit those things. Okay? Yeah. Um, the tornadoes come through. I mean, we don't know. Uh, people will tell you, we don't really know if tornadoes are, are increasing because of global warming. Well, we know that storms in general, all storminess, the severity of storms in general is increasing with global warming, but in weird ways sometimes. So we may see fewer hurricanes. The current research says we will have fewer hurricanes with global warming. Okay. The Atlantic has uh, had three or four hurricanes per year now more than it did 15 years ago. So I don't see how that's fewer. It's more. According to my version of math, 16 is more than 13, which is the average number right now. Um, but maybe the Pacific has fewer. But the storms that we have are, are, are worse because they appear out of nowhere. They move really fast. They get really powerful and or they get really big. And where hurricanes at one time were self-regulating in the sense that they would weaken. They would, if they slowed down, they would weaken because they would churn the water underneath themselves, which would, be, which would bring the water down to below the sustaining temperature. Mm -hmm. But because of warming, that temperature now is in effect for a couple, 100 meters or 200 meters below the surface. So they can't slow themselves down. Anymore. Okay. So it's like a house fire, but all the houses have a coat of gasoline. Okay. So th this, my point is, that's off the track. My point is the storms are for real and the fires are for real. The wildfires are for real. All those things are for real. They're all linked to global warming. And when they happen, that's a good time to push on that one issue. But I think another issue, uh, so I want to mention two other kinds of things that are kind of an opposite of the spectrum okay. of size. One is your representatives in the legislature at the federal level and the state level might believe in global warming. They might think it's important and they might want to do the right thing, but they forget or they get distracted. Right. So here in the Twin Cities, as our listeners may know, is the epicenter of a giant racial reckoning. Right. We are having, a, a, we have $3.3 billion worth of damage in Minneapolis because of the uprising. We're, this is where the defund the police movement comes from. I mean, this is where it's all happening. And I, I guarantee you, our legislators are sitting there worrying about this stuff right now. That's what the current legislative session is about. Uh, one of the things it's about. So where's global warming? Where's climate change? It's not the most important issue in the legislature right now, even though, in fact, it is the most important issue. Right. It's so like it's the most important issue above all issues. Except, for... except all the other issues are more important than the given <laughs> time. So that we have to stop doing that. Whatever that is, we have to stop doing. Whatever that is of how we prioritize things has to be done differently. Right. And then on the other end of the spectrum, and this is something where I deal with a lot, we've talked about this before recently, is among our, our own people, like you mentioned the candidate got up and said, global warming is important to me or climate change is important to me. Um, at, 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 this, at the 67A convention. Right. Well, the other thing you did at your convention is you voted on resolutions. Right. And it might be that you had a conversation, like people get up and talk for a minute about a resolution for or against. They normally Sometimes, do that precinct caucuses. They, um, well, if, if your, your convention yeah. can do it too, maybe yours yeah. didn't. Ours will because we have Phil Adam, who's, who's on the resolutions committee of the state. We will do it. We'll, give, we'll have 20 minutes during which time people can line up and say, I really like this resolution and they can talk about it for 45 seconds. <clears throat> Excuse me. Or they can say, I really hate this resolution. 
and tell us why. So here's a scenario that we've actually seen. Phil, uh, who's our friend who does a lot of electric car work, gets up and says, I want to speak in favor of the resolution to blah, 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 something good about electric cars, blah, blah, blah. A few guys behind him, the guy gets up and says, I wasn't going to talk about this, but since my colleague, oh. Mr. Adams, has said this, I want to note, we're not ready for electric cars. They're just using electricity that's made from coal. They're coal cars. We're not ready for electric cars. The technology's not there yet. That is a completely wrong statement. But the person got up and said it in front of everybody. Right. In a room where there's only Democrats, and everybody there is convinced global warming is important. Everybody there wants to do something about it. And they just got lied to by some guy. And he, maybe he did it on a purpose because he's actually trying to sabotage the environmental movement. More likely than not, he just doesn't know. He has it wrong. And it, I encounter this constantly. The electric vehicle industry is not ready because fill in the blank. The cobalt they use in batteries. Lithium. The, te- the range isn't good enough. You know, all these things that are, pro- it doesn't work in the cold. I heard a major environmentalist say that at a meeting a couple months ago. It's too bad electric vehicles won't work in Minnesota because it's too cold here. Huh. Now, that 350 thing you got in the literature, that's part of a project I'm working on too with 350 to try to get trucks electrified. Right. And buses and get bu- money for buses all in those school districts. We had an interview with a company called Zeus which is in Minnesota that makes electric trucks, they have not sold a single electric truck yet to a Minnesota. They're, huh. they're, they're, they're making trucks for, for municipal, municipalities to use and small buses. Like your standard truck that like street cleaners and cherry pickers and those things. They make electric versions of all those trucks. They sell them mostly to California. Okay. Anyway, I asked the guy, how do you deal with cold? And he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, I want you to drive a truck around when it's 20 below zero. He said, okay. <laughs> We're engineers. We just get the battery that has a heater in it that goes in your truck and you can drive it any temperature you want. If you're going to put your truck in Phoenix, don't buy this battery. You get 10% more range. If you're going to do it in International Falls, put this battery in instead. You won't have to worry about the, temp- the temperature at all. Almost all the time. This is something you said to me the other time we were talking about this. Almost all the time, the concern someone has that makes them believe we're not ready is really an engineer's sweet dream. Right. The engineer is already working on it. They've already solved it. Most of the time, the problems either already solved, it isn't really there, or it's going to be solved with existing technology. I like to point out cobalt as an example of that. People worry about cobalt and batteries. They have an idea in mind that there's a, a group of children in the Congo mining cobalt and being repressed. True. And then the cobalt is taken and put into uh, Teslas. Okay. And there's a direct pipeline from children in the Congo being repressed to baking Teslas. Okay. Um, something like 17% of the cobalt mined in total is mined in those mines. Okay. 50%. So about 17%. Okay. okay. Um, there are other mines in the Congo that aren't that mine. There are mines in the Congo that are just normal mines. The artisanal mines where they like, capture a, a, some families, drive off the parents, take the children out, and make them into slaves. That's only a small number of mines, and it's also a solvable problem. Um, over about half the cobalt we use, right now it's about half the cobalt we use is used to make alloys. Right. These alloys are for metals that are used in nuclear power plants because they're high under radiation. 
or jet engines. Most of it's probably jet engines, high performance jet engines for military jets. If we, you know, uh, uh, alloys that have to take a lot of heat or radiation. And these I've are never heard... used in the fans, or what, what are they used in for jet? the turbines? For the turbines. Yeah, turbines. Yeah. So for for nuclear power plants, if you want a nuclear container vessel, you use a cobalt alloy. Okay. So I've never heard anyone say we can't build nuclear power plants because of the children in the Congo. Yeah. I've never heard anyone say we can't build jet planes because of the children in the Congo. I mean, right. people probably do say that, and it's true. But when you talk about let's get some jets for the for Ukraine, no one says, wait a minute, there's children in the Congo yeah. mining cobalt. <laughs> Nobody says that. But if you said, let's buy some school buses, people will say that. So it's not because people are, but the reason obviously is because these are talking points that the anti, that the pro petroleum industry has put together and planted in the minds of environmentalists. I mean, really, a lot more cobalt is being mined in the Congo to build jets that Poland might give to Ukraine. A lot more. I mean, the, the general air force Right. Navy air industry uses a lot more cobalt than, than, than cars do. Now, in the future, cars will use more batteries. There will be more demand as we as we go from, well, I don't know how many electric cars are at that. Maybe there's 10 million electric cars and we need about 100 million. But I will point out that cobalt is an element. And when you use it in a battery, it's encased and enclosed in that battery. So that battery, when that battery is no longer usable, that cobalt is still there. All of it is still there. And you can take it out and use it in a different battery. So we're not well, like the other thing too is about them. The battery in a car is considered end of life at eighty percent for rechargeability, and so yeah. those batteries can be taken and they can be used for basic energy storage in other industries too. So it's not yes. like they get dumped. Right, they don't get dumped. They shouldn't get dumped. And, but right. also the, the 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 thing is once we once we have filled up our need of batteries, we're not going to be adding cobalt. We're going to be recycling cobalt. Sure. Oversimplification and everything said about that is also true. So I'll, I should mention the alloys that they use with the cobalt. There's superior alloys that use other mineral, other elements that don't include cobalt, but the mm -hmm. industries just aren't there to build them right now. So with an influx of funding, you could probably retool the industry. So you simply overnight double the availability of cobalt. So anyway, as, as you said to me the other day, engineers are solving these problems as at a much faster rate than than environmentalists people who are predisposed to environmentalism know about them <laughs> yeah you know so they're falsehoods and so one thing i do like i do the laundry thing and the dishwasher thing but another thing i do is i try to provide information about these falsehoods and about other issues to fellow activists and environmentalists in various different contexts, through writing, in talks, and just in groups. You know, it's, it's just when people are, are in a group and someone mentions something about, like I'm in an, an indivisible group, maybe we're gonna ask someone to come and talk to us about electric cars, and someone in the group says, yeah, but, I wanna hear the ear but, and then I'll explain politely, usually, uh, why they're you know, completely wrong, about, what they just, about everything they think about environmental issues. So that's pushing the pendulum a little bit, that pendulum, if, if you can push that pendulum a little bit every day or every few days, it'll keep going and um, you can have an impact that way. I want to mention one last thing. I sat in on a, a Zoom conference with Bill McKibben 
Um, this was last year, and uh, I've been thinking about different things that I can do with my my yard, or as they say in England, my garden. And it's a small yard; it's you know, it's not even an acre. But but what can people do as far as um, fighting global warming just in our own yards? And one of the things that he mentioned was that even if you take ten percent of your yard and and uh, change it over from grass into something that's usable by pollinators, by birds, by, um, or, you know, just wildflowers or native, native flowers, just let them grow naturally. You do a couple of different things is you, because, because most of the grass that we use requires a lot of energy, you, you're cutting it, you know, and uh, um, it, it doesn't root very deeply. And so there's a lot of runoff. So a lot of issues with a lot of the different grasses that we plant in our yards. Um, but if you if you plant natives, even in ten percent, if everybody in in St. Paul, for example, was to to plant ten percent uh, wildflowers, there'd be several different benefits. One of the things would be it would reduce the uh, runoff of chemicals into the into the sewage system and into the drainage system into the river, which is our mighty Mississippi. And and the other thing too is that it would allow. Um, uh, less emissions from um, unnatural sources that are that come from a short grass from cutting. But um, the other thing too is that since um, since there's going to be like caterpillars and stuff like that in there, it does bring in birds for people to view because they come in and they eat and it's, right and, and they and they like to eat there. So there's a lot of lot of things that you can do on a small scale that will have big effects over the long run. Yeah, and I think that's a great example also because it, it, it is a great example of how culture determines these things. Mm -hmm. Like it's a, it, there's big grain flat lawn. That is a cultural decision. It's a right. norm. It's a norm. Yeah. Big green flat. And people look at other people's lawns and they think, those are bad people. They have yeah. dandelions. Yeah. You know, they have dead spots. They didn't water their lawn during the drought. Yeah. Who, who does that? You know? And we, it, it's changing. The culture is changing, but there's no doubt that there's a, a culture. And you live in, so for those, again, who come out, who are not from around here, um, St. Paul and certain parts of Minneapolis are famous. You think about what's, what's Minnesota famous for? Snow, blizzards, cold. No. <laughs> St. Paul and parts of Minneapolis are famous for their perennial gardens. Right. Both in front of and behind the houses. And you have a perennial garden, right? Is, is it still alive or did you kill it? <laughs> abuse well, I mean, you moved into a house with I'm a changing garden. over to what i want in there i've got yeah. i've got some native wild um wild bird seed uh, not bird seed but wildflower seeds and stuff like that that i'm going to mm -hmm. start planting um and so i'm kind of changing it over from from what it was uh but i don't really know exactly what i'm doing kind of learning as i go so yeah. we'll see how successful it is yeah but, it's a very yeah. minnesotan thing and you're a native minnesotan and i am a native minnesotan from northern <laughs> minnesota yeah they're, they're, I know people. Cold. Yeah. I know Garrison Keeler got canceled, but there was a really funny skit. He did. He did it with the Lake We Won't Be Gone skit, mm -hmm. in which a, a young couple has was living in. They, they left Minnesota. They left Lake, Lake Won't Be Gone, or one of them was from Lake Won't Be Gone, maybe, and they were now living in California. And they got married. When they got married, they came back to get married in Minnesota. So there was a, a gathering of the family at their wedding, you know. And when they were talking, somebody 
they started talking about gardens because, of course, a bunch of Minnesotans get together. Someone will start talking about their garden. And so they were talking about gardens and they started talking about their garden in California. And yeah. as, they're ta- as this gets going on, I'm thinking of my sister who lives in, at the time, lived in um, San Jose and her garden was just amazing. But they had a gardener. Oh, okay. So these people are in the skit, in the Garrison Killer skit, and like talk about their garden. And at some point, someone says, How do you get time to do that? And they said, Well, the gardener comes in three times a week. And everyone in the entire room stopped talking, stopped eating, forks dropped. Because in Minnesota, having someone take care of your garden is like having someone cut your food for you. Right. Like yeah. it just isn't why you garden. It wasn't the gardens, oh. it, it's not what it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience, it's an act. Of you know a being that you do. It's not the garden is not the point. Well, it's the point. It's the gardening that's the point. Yeah. Keeps me Uh, closer to my roots. Yeah, right. Literally. Speaking of roots, one other thing I'll just mention, and again, this goes back to the activism because I just did some activism on this. I'm I'm one of the people who puts out a newsletter that goes to about ten, twelve thousand Minnesotans every Monday. On. Uh, act, specifically activists working for, in groups about what, what to call your legislator about now. Oh, sure. Okay. Yep. And one of the things that came up now is the Forever Green program, which my representative, Ginny Cleborn, who represents 42B, helped initiate and got some funding for. So the Forever Green program is a program coming out of Minnesota where there's two aspects of it. One is they're, they're creating new cultivars out of native plants that you can't eat but have other great characteristics and they're making them edible or otherwise usable. So there's, there's no one eats them yet. They're not really catching on, but at least they'll be using them for something, but they're perennials. And when you're growing something, usually other than corn, something short or medium, right? You you plant, you plant this stuff and you plant your, your, your crop in rows within that other forever green stuff. Right. Okay. It drops your productivity. Like, let's say you're growing potatoes. You'll get 10% fewer potatoes. But it costs you 45% less money to grow them. And this other crop is something. Like you can harvest it. And yeah, sure, there's not much of a market for Kernza, I think is one of them now. But there will be someday. And some of it, so you can sell it. So your total debt is, is much higher uh-huh. if you do this. It's called Forever Green. So the guy who, uh, who uh, the, the people talk about this, give a talk on it. It's really interesting because they show a picture, an aerial photograph of, farmland in minnesota every month of the year and obviously for six months it's white it's covered with snow right and for six months or seven months there's not snow and for that time for two months it's green for the other three months or four months it's brown because they haven't planted yet because you can't plant it early in minnesota or they've finished planting and of course there's a thing they call termination it's an agricultural term Right. Where the chemical you have spread on your field to kill everything that's there at the end of your harvest. So between planting in the, in the, in the early summer and termination in the early fall, there's two and a half months or so where there's green. And the rest of the time it's brown. During that time, the roots that are in there are deteriorating. The CO2 is leaving the soil. The rain is washing the soil away. Right. Or you do this forever green thing, in which case you're basically... Trapping carbon, it's not much, but you're trapping carbon all, all, the, all growing season. You are, um, uh, and, and, and the result is the amount of nitrogen fertilizer you have to put down. Right. Because it's trapped is like really a small percentage of what you normally put, it's like a fourth or something. 
or what you normally put down. It depends on the crop. So, and, and, and pesticides, you use far fewer pesticides in these conditions also. So the total amount of money you spend on the chemicals you're, you're using on your garden, on your, on your farmland, is, is like a third. And that's why the profit's higher. Wow. So it's really an amazing system. And farmers are... So they're not plowing. Up. So because of the fact that they got the perennials in there, they're not going to be plowing, which right. is another source of carbon dioxide. Uh, right emanations from your fields as they right. turn it over right yeah and there's other there's other forms of, of farming that don't that where you don't do farming i mean you don't do plowing and stuff but like this regenerative, is one of the, like regenerative where you yeah. rotate with cattle and stuff like that right. right this is one of those methods but the forever green program is coming out of minnesota and you know the, the legislator got the funding and now we're going for i think for another 50 million for this year and so and there are farmers taking it up and doing it and they're mixing it. Some farmers are, are doing organic farming with this. Uh -huh. Some farmers are not. Uh, but it's 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 like you're it's like you're doing in your house. And which brings us to an interesting point. <clears throat> All the stuff you can do matters. But it's also true that sometimes policy changes matter a lot more than personal changes. But I think personal changes would matter more if we did the right ones. Mm -hmm. Like your, your dishwashing thing, I think a lot of people would think it's a machine, so it's worse. I'm going right. to clean my dishes the organic way with my hands and run water. <laughs> but in fact, that's backwards. You know, so you, it's, it's helpful to know. So the person who goes in the grocery store and there's tomatoes and there's some more tomatoes and some of them are wrapped in plastic. Let's avoid buying the ones wrapped in plastic, right? Exactly. Okay. But how do you know what else happened to these potatoes, these tomatoes in their lifespan? <laughs> they were wrapped in plastic earlier. I guarantee you, they came yeah. into that store it's, it's, wrapped in. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, I, I would tend to think that the one that's wrapped in plastic, if you avoid that one, you're probably using less plastic. But I'd want to know the background, the pedigree of these tomatoes, to mm -hmm. know uh, how much CO2 went into the atmosphere because they were shipped here. Like, are any of these flown here from Venezuela or someplace? You know, <laughs> in an airplane right. Uh, right. versus versus shipped. Uh, from California, which in Minnesota, we have to get our food from California, Florida, Texas, whatever, Mexico. A lot of our food comes from Mexico during the dead of winter. Um, so I'd like, to, I'd like us to be able to know, I'd like to see policy that puts in place the, the information that lets us be able to make personal decisions that are better informed. I think every year or every year since I've been active, there's been pushes to add like origin labels on produce. Yeah. And I'm not sure how far they get, but yes, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of guilty of, of raising the demand for the um, yellow mangoes that have that are only <laughs> grown in Chiapas, Mexico. So I, I guess I'm not pure. <laughs> That's not that far, though. Chiapas, Mexico is not as far as China or no, Australia, where my sub came from. <laughs> you can drive to Chiapas, Mexico in a truck. That's true. <laughs> I just think that we've demonstrated there's a lot of different levels to think about these problems on. Yeah. And, and you can do, uh, and, and anybody can do more than they're doing now without it being too painful. Right. And yep. it can matter. It can help. It can matter. We don't all have to live in a, in a, in a mound out in the, out in the middle of the woods, growing mushrooms for on our roof in order to be a good environmentally active people. 
right? Not everybody has to live in a yurt in Vermont, but we do appreciate yeah. the fact that there are people in Vermont living in yurts. <laughs> yeah. So I just want to thank you for listening to this edition of Iconocast. This was just Greg and Mike talking about different things that you can do in your daily life to reduce your impact on global warming and things that you can do to talk to politicians that are also responsible for the larger things beyond your house. You may have noticed that the podcast is ad-free, commercial-free, Patreon support request-free, but there are ways that you can support us. And if you share, rate, and review enough, eventually you won't be one of our lonely listeners and we'll be a worldwide podcast changing the world. Thank you again. Have a great week and listen for the next episode.